0: Welcome to Finding The Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian company, Euros Hartleys. This is a podcast series where we take time out to get to know the story behind the people who front some of Western Australia's leading companies. We look back at some of the moments in their life and career that shaped the journey to being the leader they are today, and provide you with some real insights into the way they think and approach things, both in business and in life. To so get the volume adjusted in your car or your headphones sorted and settle in for a great story. Here is your Finding The Front host, Tim Badfield.
1: Hello everyone, I am so excited to introduce our guest for episode four of Finding the Front. Our conversation today is with the hugely successful telecommunications and technology entrepreneur and all round good guy, Mr. Tim Levy, the managing director of Family Zone, stock code FZO. Family Zone was established to empower parents and school communities with the tools. Expertise and support they need to ensure their children are safe and to prepare them for their digital futures. For Family Zone, a global business, it's all about protecting and supporting every child's digital journey. And Tim is as qualified and as passionate as anyone on the planet on this topic. Hearing Tim's pathway to the founding of Family Zone and his massive insights into the world of the internet and the challenges that both parents and schools around the world face, every day is captivating. So without further ado, let's get started. Introducing Mr. Tim Levy. Levs, welcome to the show.
2: G'day Ben, how are you going?
1: Yeah, great. Great to have you on. We really are excited. You've got just such a fascinating story and um, we've been really looking forward to just digging down and understanding how you've grown family zone to where it is now. A phenomenal company, but there's a lot more to it. And going back in time and understanding the way that you've shaped your life is a, is a fascinating story. So if we could just kick off, I know you mentioned to me when we've caught up in the past, you went to Greenwood Primary and Greenwood High School. How was it growing up there?
2: Well, Greenwood is in between the freeway and Wanneroo Road. So we always thought we were Richer and more better off than the people (laughs) in Balber and and, uh, Kundula. but we're envious of the people on the beach side. Oh look, it was a great middle class um, place, very protected, felt very safe for me. But we also felt like we were really cool, you know, walking around the suburbs, going thirds in a six pack. (laughs) (laughs) It was it was really yeah really safe and protected. Perth was growing really quickly north back in those days, you know, in the yes in the seventies and eighties. There was three primary schools in Greenwood, and Greenwood's a suburb that was built by Bond Corporation. It was a really interesting place, and it was built to be, to be connected so everyone could walk around the suburb, kids walking everywhere. Three primary schools in a small suburb, and then the high school was built, and in my year, the first year of year eight, at Greenwood High, there was 300 kids. No way. 300 kids. 90 of them made it to year 12. <laughs> that is outstanding. I know, and 13 went to uni.
1: Unbelievable. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. So
2: um, it was great, but I also felt very, um, it was quite insular. And so when I, when I went to uni many years later, I, I was kind of shocked with all these people such as yourself, these kind of chiselled out of marble, good looking Western suburbs oh. boys at uni. <laughs> <laughs>
1: easy, easy. And,
2: uh, you know, all in their chambray shirts and deck, sh- deck shoes. And it was, it was like I, I, I was a real fish out of water. So it took me a long time to kind of find myself once I left school.
1: Yes. And what was your parents doing in Perth? Your dad was... They're native. Um, native Western Australians?
2: Uh, yes, albeit I was born in Sydney. My dad moved over there to work in an earth-moving business, Tut Brands, I think it was. So he was selling equipment, um, earth-moving equipment. Mum, housewife, dad moved back here. The family moved back here when I was very young, a couple of weeks old, literally. And yes. dad stayed in that earth-moving equipment uh, area, worked for Volvo BM for a long time. Just And he was just the most amazing, generous, hard-working guy to a fault to be honest like would s- just do anything for everybody connect with any sort of community be it aboriginals or asian communities or right. what, like just you know he started the kingsley football club he started that he was one of the normal members of the northern districts football club
1: they um, are very strong football clubs yeah yeah. Um,
2: yeah and just just a superstar mum was insane they both passed she she's a nutcase, case but super intelligent you know way more intelligent than, than me but always on the edge of, because super emotional, super intelligent, like it's yep. the worst place to be. <laughs> so we obviously get caned a lot by her. But yeah, I had a, a fantastic upbringing with that, with those two.
1: And did they give you any influence in terms of your ultimate destination into technology? Was there any sort of inkling in your upbringing that drove you in that path, or is it well, that was a later thing? Yeah, it's an interesting question.
2: I've never thought about it. No, mum and dad had zero technical capability. Dad's more of a people person. Mum's, again, super intelligent, but neither of them had an engineering sort of mindset. I still remember mum panicking when she got the first credit card and had to stick it into an ATM. So, no, Luddites, complete Luddites. So I'm not sure where where it came from, but I took to technology really naturally uh, at Anderson's, actually, many years, years later. I didn't, I always thought at uni somewhat arrogantly, that I'd never have to touch a computer. I'd have a PA to do that or something. But when you got into the workforce and the way that work changed when we started Andersons, yeah, I just took to it like duck to water.
1: Well, we'll get to the great Andersons time, <laughs> which was clearly a significant time in your life. You went through senior school.
2: Did pretty well? Uh, yeah, I did. Well, I think I topped the school in the TE. I didn't make it into the committee. I wasn't ducks. I wasn't, was a bit cheeky. So they, <laughs> the teachers didn't particularly like me. But yeah, top, top school. Uh, still, on, on the, I'm on a whiteboard somewhere or on a board somewhere in the library. You're in the, in the Hall room, of Fame. Yeah.
1: Oh, congratulations. <laughs> that led you into UWA, Bachelor of Commerce. Yep. Now, Bachelor of Commerce keeps your options open. Exactly. And, and ultimately did well, well enough to secure a spot at, as you've alluded to, Anderson's.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and you're right. The, that's exactly why I did the Commerce degree, because it does keep your options open. I had no idea what to do. Literally, and so many, so many young kids are the same. have zero idea. And the good thing about commerce, particularly when you're focusing on either economics or business or the law side of it, yeah, you have so many options open. And uh, applied at the end of year, and you did okay, I think B plus average. And then you get out there and um, into the graduate recruitment program. Back then, was in a hotel in I think South Perth. You literally turn up into a hotel. Like these little rooms with you know a partner from BDO or you know Deloitte or something, and and be interviewed over a two day period. Well, like speed dating, it was exactly like speed dating. You go from hotel room to hotel room. It was it was really quite awkward. Actually, you're sitting in a in a room mm. with a bed, mm. talking to a partner about a potential career. It was it was really weird. Goodness me! But I struck up a friendship with um or a um a great conversation with a guy called Derek Parkin, who was a partner. At Anderson, at the time, he played bass in a guitar in in a band, and I played I played lead in a heavy metal band. And we just started chatting, and that got me the job at Anderson's.
1: Well, that extracurricular thing like <laughs> playing in a band—who would have thought? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, so that, you, see, so you, did you find uni easy?
2: I mean, B plus average, but I wouldn't say easy. I mean, commerce—the early part of commerce is hard. I mean, was stats and you know economics and and so on. No, I worked pretty hard actually Yeah, Uh, and I also had to work a full-time job so I was working night times stacking shelves at FAL so I was working kind of 35 hours a week and playing footy at Subi and and at uni so no, I found it pretty taxing actually.
1: Yes, yes. I could imagine actually. Typically a commerce degree does have a lower number of hours but to be able to supplement the lifestyle with a a job at FAL, I could understand. Yeah,
2: it It was nine hours contact in the first year.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was... (laughs) Now, having done commerce myself, I remember it was a little bit on the light side, but yeah. It, yeah, there was plenty of outside work to do. Well,
2: I'll give an example um, of how green I was. So I went to I went to Oday at UWA with my army surplus backpack with piping hot handwritten on it. I was really nervous, and I had all my uh, files all, all ordered depending on the class I was in. And I got to Oday, and you'd be very familiar. Like I got there at ten in the morning. the people passed out, vomit everywhere, <laughs> and uh, and uh, it's and it's really wonderful. And in fact, I feel like uni's kind of losing that because my stepdaughter, who's, who's at UWA, she doesn't really have contact at all. It's all virtual now. So, so little of her time is spent on campus. And I think that's a really important part of the journey mm. that kids are like, losing.
1: Absolutely. So, Lev's out of uni and into Andersons, that is a seven-year term where, when we've talked before, you've learned an extreme amount and it's a, it's a global opportunity. Tell us a little bit about what you took out of Andersons, including the ability to communicate, the international flavour of it, and yeah. the strategy and the, and the planning that went into that, that role.
2: Well, I was a white sheet of paper until I got to Andersons. That's when I grew up. I was lucky to have some fantastic job experiences and mentors on the way. So I started at Andersons in the insolvency division with guys like uh, Ross Norgard, like a superstar personality in Perth, Jeff Herbert, who I loved dearly. Uh, and a guy called Richard Marshall, who was up until recently the CFO at the WACA. Um, he's probably the, I mean, Ross is big personality. Jeff's a wonderful man. But Richard's probably the first mentor I had. And he was that that mentor that would, you'd give him a piece of work. Right Back in those days, you'd write, you'd dictate a letter, get it written by the PA, hand it to him. And he would literally tear it up in front of you, throw it in the bin. Right, And he was that guy, like throw him off the deep end type manager. And I needed that. It was outstanding for me. Like, and so I, I, I worked incredibly hard to win his respect and trust. Yes. That was the, so perfect for me. I know people are different, right? That, that wouldn't be the right sort of manager for most people. In fact, I'm somewhat that manager now, which I know people don't like. I worked in the insolvency area for a year. And then Ian Gerard, again, another big name here in Perth, approached me. He was he's such a powerful guy. He was setting up a business consulting d- division. In in Perth, it was originally called operational consulting or something like that. Okay. And um, him and Michael McNulty were going across the globe accessing pools of funds from World Bank projects, World Bank funded projects, to do things in all sorts of places, principally at the time in Zambia. So they approached me if I would like to join that team. I was petrified. You know, I think I'd left the state once to Queensland for a two-week drinking session uh, in my 20s. Early no, late teens, and um, so I went to Paul House. I know you, you know him well. Uh, and Junk said, "Just do it." Right, the answer to every question in your life should be yes, and that's his life. Right, that Paul is such an amazingly willing participant in everything in his life, and and you know, I'm I'm nowhere near that. But he opened my myself up to the consulting division. Right. Yeah, I think four weeks later, I was um, I was uh, I was arriving in Kidwe Airport in Lasaka, sorry, not Lusaka Airport in Zambia, uh, the day that they installed x-ray machines. And it was chaos. Not like in Australia when machines stop and everyone kind of lines up for 14 hours. There, when machines don't work, people just go about their business. And there was, it was chaos. People wheeling steel trolleys through the x-ray machines.
1: Everything going on. Everything
2: going on. It was crazy. And you know, me being a 21-year-old trying to grow a moustache so I looked like an adult. <laughs> uh, it was wild, yeah. Um, and yeah, so working with Ian was, was probably the next stage of my career. I went from being very technical with Richard Marshall to working with Ian. What he taught me was the politics of, of business. How do you create an outcome? You know, If you really want to achieve something, it's not just being smart, it's actually being political. It's thinking through, what do I need to do? Sometimes you need to shout at someone, sometimes you need to negotiate, sometimes you need to massage someone's ego. You need to do all of that, and you know, that's the genius of Ian Gerard. He he not only has all that, but he then trains his lieutenants to do that. It was an outstanding lesson, and in an, an amazing environment. I lived in Zambia, f-, in and out of Zambia for five years. In a um, would you believe, with people like Paul House and and Michael Lynn and David Keegan's and, and many others, there was thirteen of us at one stage. What an a, experience in a VD clinic. Literally, we lived in the in the Kitwe VD clinic. My goodness. <laughs> and so Andersons were. Clearly, right behind this well, it was Dradd was, Ian trying, to, was driving trying to um, create his own career right. um, out of it, and um, you know, somewhat exploiting our naivety. But you know, we, we were the winners out of it. It was fantastic,
1: fantastic, all yeah. right I mean, what an experience! So you ended up covering off on Zambia, Jordan, yep. Saudi Arabia, yeah, uh, Africa or South Africa, yeah, um, and Australia. So it was, a, it was quite a broad mix of opportunity,
2: yeah. Yeah so 5 years in in Zambia 6 months in Jordan 6 months in Saudi in and out of South Africa constantly yeah and all of them unique yeah really really lucky to be thrown in those situations at such a young age yeah look me being early 20s and sitting I never forget I was probably 21 22 sitting in a room of 40 accountants from ZCCM that were all actually knew what they were doing. I'd never done a set of accounts in my life and I had to sit and stand up there and talk to them about change and, you know, US accounting and, yeah, it was, it was they were just thrown into situations that you couldn't imagine and we had to deal with it because we had no, you know, email or contact with, with Australia. We just had to get things done. A group of young Aussies, it was, it was fantastic. So you learned how to cope with any situation? Any situation, yeah.
1: What a great background to what you ended up doing. When you left Anderson's, it was, it was a resignation in essence because you had an opportunity. And that was the B digital opportunity that yeah. arose. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about what, how that transition occurred? And, and I w- I'm also very interested at that point, this is your first foray into technology. Because it, my understanding is your Anderson's experience was more around mining related.
2: Yeah, it was systems selection, implementation, business process, re-engineering, strategy stuff. I kind of fell into the technology strategy and enablement area just because again that's how my at anderson's, my brain, at anderson's yeah right. but it was definitely focused on the mining industry and i used to talk at the time about being bored of mining because everything i did was about cost reduction it wasn't about being creative and i would agonize with a guy called morris um, argento from main sheet consulting who's who was an anderson's partner back then we used to spend days agonizing over intricate powerpoint presentations you know a single bubble diagram that could explain amazing nuanced concepts and I was increasingly getting frustrated that I was actually never doing anything. I never felt like I made decisions and saw and was accountable for the outcome of it. And anyway, long story short, a friend of mine at the time, a guy called George Alavis, was setting up a telco business with Kerry Stokes. And I was in Saudi Arabia at the time and he reached out and said, would you like to come over and, and help us you know, set this business up?
1: So that Be Digital though, that was, you, you started with the Stokes yeah. operation and then that led into Be Digital.
2: Yeah, well, so it's called Be Clear and Simple originally, just a okay. business, and then it's listed as Be Digital. I actually expected to be uh, become a junior accountant on the Home and Away set or something. I didn't think it would work, so I thought, well, I'll be part of the Kerry Stokes family and I'll get a job somewhere if this doesn't work. But it did work. We happened upon the idea of direct fulfilment of mobile phones. At the right time, internet was coming in. In fact, the first internet boom was happening, and Kerry Stokes and some kind of adjacent People started setting up in our office and, and listing things like MBox and, and stuff. So I started to get a taste for the stock market and raising money and spooky ideas and, and so on. So that was all happening around us as we were getting our heads around how to um, how to package up mobile phone plans, buy Nokia and Ericsson handsets, and get them out out the door. So that I was there for I think I was there for about seven years. That's right. That was
1: quite pioneering at that point.
2: Yeah. So it was us and a company called Mobile Innovations. We're really the only direct fulfillment mobile phone company. Companies in, in Australia at the time. We were buying airtime off Optus, packaging up with devices and, and again direct fulfilling. What the what we'd learned though is it's a very efficient method because you're not, you know, renting retail stores and hiring all the retail staff and you know phone displays and so on. But um, direct fulfillment and what you now know as web sales, you know, internet sales, it actually attracts the most cost conscious buyer. So in retail, the average spend of a retail um, mobile phone user is probably two times what it is for somebody who buys online. So we were constantly in a margin battle. It, we, it was really hard to get the efficiencies to make that business work when every customer is finding every opportunity to leverage all the discounts and offers that you give them to, for their advantage. Whereas in retail, you get people who are less concerned about price. Yes. Um, and so within a couple of years of that uh, B digital business launching, I brought in a guy called a really good friend of mine, Scott Cuomo, who had retail experience. and Then we set up a distribution network of retail stores. I think we eventually had about 220 stores. But this is through B-Digital? Through B-Digital, yeah. Yeah. And then, so B-Digital was listed right at the end of the first tech boom and just as that crash, crash happened and Kerry had to underwrite the, the listing.
1: Yes. Yeah. Talk to me about that tech boom. I mean, it would have been you were right in it and you saw it and then you saw the and the listing into it. Mm. But then you maintained it and it, was, it became quite a success story, B-Digital, in terms that it was acquired.
2: Yeah, and no, I've got... Yeah, it's a bit of a shame actually, because it was it was we did get through that tough time. So many people who listed or raised money in that first tech boom disappeared. I mean, the whole world understood that. Well, the whole whole world's perspective on internet changed, right? So back in those days, people thought that you could build a web business and people would pay a subscription for it. And then ultimately, we realized that people don't do that. It's kind of changing now, but but for the next twenty years, people just kind of traded away there personal data for free services and it became an advertising medium so the internet changed so everyone's perspective on that has changed and so many businesses didn't survive it but you know we got through by just hard work and grit I guess and great support from from Kerry but then as the um, what was known as new media technology back then was known, known as new media as Kerry Stokes investments in that kind of got seen negatively by the analysts because it was confusing messaging yes he had to exit And so, you know, the sad part of the story is that I think that Kerry Stokes' 7 Network was was forced to exit too early, a business that was going really well. We were turning over $220, $240 million a year. We had 400 staff. We were on a really good trajectory to start making real money. And then he offloaded it to a group called um, DigiPlus and, you know, there was a subsequent big boardroom executive battle and, and Sean Gentry, Scott Cuomo and I kind of ended up on the on the curb, we we got um, we got kicked out. So it was a right. bit of an ugly battle, a lot of tears internally. It was, and you know, I think it was a shame because I think we had something really special.
1: Well, it's a great journey in terms of going through that tech side of it, surviving such a big crash, and then coming out, and then getting it acquired. And in essence, I suppose it was in Kerry's best interest. Is that fair to say?
2: Yeah, I think yeah, the bigger bigger story for him was the Seven business, and it was being yeah. undermined by this thing. Uh, and these other investments that he had in in technology, so yeah, they, they made the right call. And he, uh, I, 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 he's an amazing guy. He's he supported us after we um, exited B Digital. So we then set up a chain of mobile phone stores called Mo's Mobiles, which was a big channel of three mobile. Once we left B Digital, and now that's part of the Vodafone so, business.
1: So that was the three of you, yeah, that came out of B Digital, then went on to set up Mo's Mobiles, yeah. How did you form that relationship with Vodafone to be able to have independent stores all over Australia?
2: Yeah, so we we left B Digital. I was again nervous. Didn't have a job first time in my life had a mortgage and um I would kind of put on my suit every day, go down to the subi hotel, read the newspaper, look for job opportunities and then um Sean and Scott were much more entrepreneurial than I and they they just started kind of hatching up business plans and they they essentially created an IAM and then pitched it to Telstra Optus and three mobile at the time saying we're a group of mobile executives look what we did for Optus you know give us a deal and it was three mobile that gave us an extraordinary deal and so we moved to Sydney just to set this business up again kind of replicating that model being a virtual mobile retailer having a direct fulfillment model but also doing what's called a store within a store so you'd have a Joe's mobile phone store so back in those days you'd have literally you know John Smith having a phone store and Cabramatta and he'd sell Vodafone prepaid and Optus mobile phones yes. and, and so on, right? And so we would create a booth within his shop where he's selling phones and accessories and plans and so on and that would be the three mobile booth within his store, the shop within shop. Right. That was the idea. We signed up tons of these dealers. Scott Cuomo's a genius at building distribution. But unfortunately in those days the three mobiles were, you know, a foot long with antennas on them and no one wanted them. And when they…
1: Analog-like…
2: Well, there was, this, there was the three technology, but there wasn't enough base stations. And if you walked one step outside of the, the CBD, your phone stopped working. And so it just didn't work. And so we ran out of money. Literally every, every cent we had, we were about to lose our houses, everything. It was all over. And Nigel Dews, who was the CEO of, of Hutchison, another great guy, another really important person in my journey. I hate that expression. Anyway, another important person in my life. We went to him and said, Look, Nigel, we've done our best. We've we've been toiling away at this business for a long time. We've we're out of dough. Let's just leave as friends. And Nigel just begged us not to. And he said, Look, I will underwrite your business for I think it was fifteen months or twelve months. I'll you know, literally, I think it was like three hundred thousand dollars. We'll pay you three hundred thousand dollars a month, do not go, keep things running. We've got literally he said, We've got Nokia handsets coming. And within about six months we had Nokia handsets come and that three business just took off. Unbelievable. And, yeah, and so we had this huge business turning over probably $30, $40 million a year, and we had 12 staff. It was unbelievable. So how many shops within shops did you have? Over to 200. Over 200. And then, so that was going really well. Um, Three systems were outstanding. Their marketing was brilliant. Everything about that business was fantastic. And then, you know, as luck would have it, they merged with Vodafone. Vodafone systems at the time weren't so good. And there was, you would have heard of Vodafone, you know, the Vodafone network crashing. And yes, so that was that time. So we had staff who were one day loving life and the next day having mobile phones thrown at them because their data services were crashing. So we went from really great, super profitable business to loss-making business, and then we just had to work really hard for a couple of years to, to right-size it.
1: Did it ultimately come out as a, a win?
2: Uh, well it's, it's still going, yeah. It's still a chain of, I think we've got 70 or 80 Vodafone stores. So so Scott, Shaw and I are still part of that.
1: I was going to ask, yeah. it it's shows on your profile that you've, Started it and that's still presently yeah it's part still of going that, and
2: um know, yeah, it's a good business uh, it's run by a guy uh, Scott and a guy called James Walkley in Sydney uh, hard business because you're you've got one supplier Vodafone you know you can't sell your channel to Telstra and Optus anymore that doesn't really exist they know essentially what you make there's not much competitive tension in that arrangement and the sophistication of the customer is is evolving quickly their expectations on service after sales support. Even the retail experience, right? TV screens, dummy phones, um, live mobile phones that control. Like, it's really expensive to make money. You, you're lucky to make money by kind of day 23, day 24 each month. It's a tough, tough gig. Most of those stores are owned by franchisees, so we support young people. We did back then, now they're a bit older, but we support yes. young, young, good retailers to get their own lease and get their own business up and running. So really good, we've got some good guys that run that, those stores. I don't do anything in this business, by the way, anymore. I'm... I'm I'd leave that to the people who actually know what they're doing, but yeah, it's it's a good business. It's um it's kind of washing its face. It's been tough in the last few years with COVID. Right, retail's been destroyed really in retail uh, in in Melbourne and and Sydney, uh, and a big part of the Vodafone and previously Three business was international students. You know, it's probably forty percent of our sales were the Indian and Chinese students in. who came in, and they was yes. no Vodafone. They've never heard of Optus or Telstra, right? So Vodafone would dominate, and Three would dominate that. But without that, in the last few years, it's been again really tough. So during that period, there's a couple of things that come out of that. I mean,
1: COVID, I'd like to just touch on, in essence, on a, on a, a level more with Family Zone. But through that period, you met your, there's a bit of a story behind your beautiful partner, Nikki.
2: <laughs> yeah. Is that, that's where that. Yeah. So Nikki um, went to Greenwood, where I did, went to the same school that I did. She's a couple years younger than me. I, I never met her, but I did know her. Her older sister, who was was a partner um, of my best mate, Matt Vandwell, at the time, Um, she and I dated when I think I was 21, 19. I think we met through uh, Michael Lynn, actually. She played basketball with Michael Lynn. uh, He's a Deloitte partner. And we had one date. She thought she could do better. I thought I could do better. So we didn't call each other. And we (laughs) met 10 years later. And I remember saying to her, look, I'm I'm sorry, I, I just thought I had better options and then I was, it, was, it was quite a joking conversation <laughs> and she looked at me like I was like an idiot she said please you were so immature <laughs> um, so you bumped into each other 10 years later she'd by that stage married and was kind of ending her relationship with her previous husband she'd had had a child Bailey beautiful girl then we started dating again uh, and yeah then literally that was all happening at the time I'd left be digital and was setting up this new phone business and within six or 12 months of that relationship being rekindled, if you could say that, yeah, um, I moved to Sydney. So I spent two years in Sydney commuting kind of every week or two weeks. To this is with of, Mo's Mobile. With Mo's Mobile, yeah, yeah, to try and um, maintain that relationship with Nikki. And then probably five years into the Mo's thing, I just wanted to have a child. I'd, well, I I'd wanted to want to have a child. I knew it was the next stage of my life, and so I organised my life to get back to Perth. Yeah, which I did. So then I became like the, the retail distributor guy here in Perth. I'd be driving around Perth literally dropping phones off at retail stores. I did that for a couple of years. In a
1: Moe's mobile in car? In Moe's mobile.
2: <laughs> with Moe's mobile, mobile stickers on my car. <laughs> really? Seriously, <laughs> yeah. Just to just to survive and to you know, build that relationship with Nikki and have a child. and Yeah. and Oh,
1: the, oh fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Well, I know you mentioned she's been a big support in what you were doing through that period of time and, and still is. That whole... Uh, journey in terms of be digital Mo's mobile and your insights into technology the internet mobile phones kids understanding them is this how the whole family zone concept took place i
2: think so yeah there, yeah. there was we we were taught people at paul house and i were taught to open your eyes up to stuff out overseas through our experience at anderson's yeah I then took that to all my subsequent careers. So at most Mobiles, we were very um, willing to embrace, like literally go overseas and find technology that we could bring into the retail experience that make us more competitive than, our, than the people competing with. And that worked really well. So yeah, there was, I was always willing to be open to alternative ideas and particularly technologies. The other thing that was really important I saw is in telecommunications, uh, again, us old, old blokes will remember this, you couldn't send SMSs between Optus, bear with me, this will make sense in a moment. you couldn't send SMSs between Telstra and and Optus mobile phones when SMS was first launched. And then they opened up what's called the point of interconnect between the telcos. And that Christmas, everybody was sending SMS messages to everybody. I, I remember it really clearly. And SMS became ubiquitous. And it's the interoperability is what creates, that's what resonates with me. Interoperability is what creates mass market adoption. You think You see it now with apple payments now you can do apple payments everywhere everyone's just tapping their phones so it's interoperability that's the key for adoption and the reason that's important with family zone is i saw no parents protecting their kids and they're not doing it because it's really hard you're putting parental controls on a gateway access point you're putting parental controls on your kid's iphone schools are putting network filters in place but your kids are falling through the cracks because it's no interoperability. That's the problem that we're trying to solve. So that was the idea in 2013 when Mose Mobiles was doing well. I was, I was living in Perth and, you know, the Mose Mobiles business wasn't needing me to be involved, but I had kids who were becoming quite... So you had your two uh, Yeah, my boys, two boys. Yep. Yeah, they are becoming consumed by technology. Yes. My stepdaughter's... Sorry, my niece's friend had, had killed himself, which was which really impacted me just as I was looking at my, my boys growing up and just imagining that is my reality and, and so all that was happening and then I remember going to a, a course uh, like a cyber safety awareness night at Subiaco primary and the lady from Microsoft said look don't worry the internet's not a bad place and then the lady from the AFB came on and said if your kids shared naked pictures they could go to jail like so you have these parents petrified and then I started to try and fix this problem in my environment and I couldn't that the technology just didn't exist so that's where it all came together you know young kids interested in this problem worthy of my time yes i know people who've got technical capability in this area um and i've got a willingness to kind of jump on a plane and find a solution so that's that's the origins of so it so the
1: capabilities you had really to to take this and run with it but you could see that there was a solution that was required yeah um to really what is a quite a phenomenal problem that was evolving at that time
2: yeah i still think it's the biggest challenge the world faces today yes yeah and yeah the the idea I, well the It all took off at the, I think it's called the Unicorn Bar. It used to be called the Nick in Shenton Park. So Paul Robinson, who leads our product team, Ben Trigger, who leads our technology team at, at Family Zone, we were having a drink there and we were just talking about this idea why, why can't we just configure policy settings in the cloud and you know, then syndicate those policy settings into an access point or into a mobile app or into a kid's PC or something and you know just set your child's rules once and it works everywhere. And um, Ben Trigger said, yeah, that's, who was the engineer in the room? He said, yeah, that's definitely possible. And that was in 2013. And then we kind of set about building prototypes and raising money.
1: Well, that's the end of Part A with Mr Tim Levy, Managing Director of Family Zone. And wow, what a story it is. Part B is ready and right up next.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding the Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian Wealth Management and Diversified Financial Services Company, Euros Hartleys. If you like what you heard, please don't hesitate to tell your friends and subscribe to the podcast through your podcast host of choice. If you have any questions or would like to contact us, please email our fabulous producer, Bridget, on communications at eurosheartleys.com or visit our website at www.euroshartleys.com. This podcast has been general information only. Euros Heartleys holds Australian Financial Services Licence 230052.